This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got the return of Lila Rose. She is an alum of this podcast. She was here with us on episode 145. But for those of you that maybe have not heard of her or have not listened to that episode yet, she is the founder and president of Live Action. So they are a pro-life organization that she started in her living room when she was just 15 years old. And Live Action exists really just to try to eradicate abortion entirely, right? That's why they're here. They do that in two ways. That one is through education. And so they publish really the most widely read news sites uh, on the pro-life issue. They're one of the most widely followed things on all of social media in terms of the pro-life cause. And the other way that they do this is they do investigative jur- journalism. So they've infiltrated the the pro-abortion lobby in the industry and actually exposed their lies and abuses and the things that they've done actually in some of those clinics. And really their large online presence is why they've become a target, right? They've been targeted for throttling of their posts or for shadow banning and different things like that. We don't get a lot uh, into that in this particular podcast. The main reason why we had her back on is because she is releasing a new book. Guys, and if you're listening to this on time, it is out today. So you can go get it on all the platforms where you can find books and it's called fighting for life, becoming a force for change in a wounded world. And guys, the reason why we bring on people like her is because she doesn't mince words, right? She doesn't look for the most politically correct way to say something, right? She's just going to get into it and get after it, right? Especially on an issue like this. There's not a whole lot of room for nuance. There's not a whole lot of room for euphemisms. And so we really appreciate her style and the way that she goes goes about things. And her organization has grown because she has been able to spearhead it in a direction towards the eradication of abortion, which is obviously something that we we support here on this podcast and have continued to support and will continue to support into the future. So guys, I don't want to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Lila Rose, welcome back to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. Great to be back. Yeah, we're we're happy to have you on. And I just got to tell you, as you know, you were the very first female guest of Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. But since then, we've had Taya Kyle, we've had Holly McKay. (laughs) And this is a good time to tell all my listeners, we have a very simple filter. And it's a single filter through which if a female comes on our show to talk to our highly male audience, that they have to make (laughs) one thing true. They have to be a gangster. And you certainly are. (laughs) Taya is. Holly is. And so uh, that is the only thing. We don't have people on here for no reason, but we appreciate the way that you fight. And we're going to get a lot into that today. So thank you again for coming back on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. There are some congratulations in order because last time you barely mentioned this, the first time you came on our show that you were going to be releasing a book, but we're here guys. If you're listening to this or watching this on time, your new book, your technically your first book has been released. It's called fighting for life, becoming a force for change in a wounded world. Mm -hmm. So guys, don't worry in the show notes, you will have all the ways that you can go and pick up the book. But the thing that was interesting about this book, I just finished it a couple of days ago and it it was, it was fantastic is it's hard to categorize, right? And I know a lot of people love (laughs) their categories. And so it's kind of an autobiography, but it's kind of not. And it's kind of a political advocacy book, but not really that much. So I guess just briefly, how would you categorize the book that you wrote for us? So I actually categorize it. I've categorized it as a manual. Um, And yes, it's a lot of stories in there of life action behind the scenes, my own life. There's obviously a lot of like pro-life, like fight for life, but it's really designed to give the tools and the lessons, some of them more spiritual, more sort of um, personal, and then some of them more practical for what does it look like to become a force for change in the world? And so I wanted to lay out the lessons I've learned to provide other people that support in their own journeys in fighting for life and fighting to make our world better. 
When you got uh, a lot of high praise, even in the the very first few pages of the book, you're getting high praise from people like Lee Strobel and David Daladin and, and Abby Johnson, but also a fan favorite of me and this podcast, and that's Ben Shapiro. What he wrote about your book was this. <laughs> Lila Rose is one of the most courageous warriors for truth and life in America today. Her voice is indispensable. And in this book, you'll learn why she fights and how you can fight too. So I guess just... I, I would like to know what, what it's like to have people like that to think so highly of you and the work that you've done and the work that you're putting out in this space. Well, it's super kind, but I think it's um, the result of, I mean, working over the last 10, 15 years and trying to make mis you know, making mistakes, getting up again, getting back in the ring, getting back in the ring. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I've made lots of mistakes. I share some of them in the book. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to get back in the ring. It's constant training. It's, you know, new levels of training and learning how to get out there and make a difference in the world. Um, but I think other people who are on that wavelength, who want to make a difference, who want to fight, when they see other people trying, you know, they try to encourage them. So maybe yeah. they're a little overly nice in those comments at the beginning of the book. But I think, you know, Ben's a fighter. That's why he's like, you go, you go, girl, fight. And, you know, other people that where I was very blessed with their kind words, they're fighters too. And so I think that sort of shared spirit of like, mm -hmm. we want to fight for what's right. Um, you, you know, bonds us together. Yeah. And I think that that's, I kind of said it tongue in cheek earlier about us having gangsters on the podcast, but <laughs> that's just true of people that are fighters. Like no one would look at Ben Shapiro and think, oh, I'm, I'm scared of this person physically, right? He's not a physically imposing <laughs> person, but intellectually hey, he's a fighter and he will fight you <laughs> tooth and nail. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so I think it just, it gives people a little bit of a different definition of courage yeah. and people that are willing to enter the fray as a fighter. But what I want to do now is I want to go ahead and get into a bunch of quotes from the book because it's going to be impossible to encapsulate all the great stuff from the book. That's why we're encouraging all of our listeners to go buy it. But right before part one of the book, you have this quote here. The world needs men and women of conviction who will not sit by as the battle rages. Let's dare to dream of a world that is better and together boldly enter the fray to make it so. And so with that, why do so many supposed pro-lifers sit idly by? Because mm -hmm. I see that all the time. Oh yeah, I'm pro-life. Have you ever done anything that anyone would even know that that's the case about you? And the answer is almost always no. Why does that happen? Mm -hmm. um, a couple of things. I think we've put ourselves in a box of what's possible. You know, we're so used to habitually living the normal life, the normal life of work at your job, maybe have your family. I mean, that's beautiful. That's awesome. You know, go to church on Sundays, you know, watch TV in the night, go to bed, do it again the next day. And, you know, we forget that, first of all, you can make the normal life at, you know, extraordinary with the love and the intention and the sacrifice you put into each thing you do. But actually, there's more to life than the normal life, you know, and we have to allow ourselves, and I talk about this in the book, to let our hearts be stirred and broken for what's happening out there. You know, we have to like open our minds and our hearts to the realization of the crisis on our doorsteps because it's easy to like live normal we're you know in America we have so we have food over you know roofs over our heads food in our mouth in our valleys like we have so many privileges mm -hmm. and gifts you know we're not living in the third world where violence is on the street you know you know that we're afraid of like our family every night you know dying or whatever we have so many securities and so we have to allow ourselves to see there are people literally in our own cities who are being torn to shreds you know, human beings, children who are being dismembered, destroyed legally with full consent of the law 
and we're just living our lives as if it's not happening, we can't live that way. We have to rouse ourselves to action. And that's going to be uncomfortable. I talk about that in the book, like get ready to be uncomfortable. It's going to mean leaving our comfort zone. It's going to be standing alone sometimes and looking different. You have to be willing, an activist, a world changer, a revolutionary, a Christian has to be willing to be uncomfortable, to put ourselves in situations that seem unusual in order to stand for what is right and, and and truly love. And so I talk about a lot in that book and I think pro-life activism, I think every single Christian, if you're a man listening to this podcast and you haven't gone outside an abortion clinic just even to pray for a half hour, just to stand there, you don't have to say or do anything, you just stand there and you pray and you recognize what's happening. There's children being killed, the women being lied to, this is this blood business, but you pray and you intercede. You ask God for mercy on those moms, those children, the men who are complicit, and you ask for God to show you what you can do. This is one step. I mean, peaceful um, resistance can be prayer. You know, that's the first step, but physically placing ourselves mm-hmm. at the doorstep, you know, you know, on the public sidewalk, obviously you don't, you know, don't, don't, you don't need to trespass. You just stand there, let yourselves be changed by that. And then you start to find out ways to get more act- activistic, more involved in the movement. So, you know, we always encourage obviously peaceful activism, but there's so many ways to do it where you push the envelope, mm-hmm. where you make a difference. And so I would start with get outside of your comfort zone and be ready to be uncomfortable. That I think is a, is a key first step. We're constantly encouraging guys to be uncomfortable because we we talk about cultivating spiritual, mental, and physical resilience and toughness. And I think what encapsulates a lot of what you just said there, Lila, is a quote from the first chapter of your book, which is just allowing our hearts to remain broken for people in danger, especially the most vulnerable, is a necessary pain. There, there's a lot of pain that we experience that there's no necessary to it, at least not that we can see, right? Not that we can surmise. But I think that, that informs a lot of what we would do, and especially when it comes to defending truth. And so I want to kind of skip ahead to chapter six of your book, because I think there are some truths, especially around people like Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood that are not known by a lot of people that would consider themselves pro-life. So I'll read a quote here. A proud eugenicist and matter-of-fact dehumanizer, Sanger, that's Margaret Sanger, viewed herself and her allies as champions of progress and women's rights. She would not have been a champion of a family like mine. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members, Sanger said unashamedly, is to kill it. Taking its cue from its founder, Planned Parenthood would go on to kill millions of American children and advocate against every single proposed abortion restriction. So the reason why I bring that quote up is because most people look at, and I mentioned this in the last podcast I did with you, Planned Parenthood is just this morally neutral thing, right? It, it's just basically, it's like a 24-hour clinic. It's like, oh, I can either go to Planned Parenthood for this, or I can just run to, to the doctor's office real quick. But they don't understand the evil of a woman like Margaret Sanger. They don't understand the evil of the inner workings of Planned Parenthood, and we could certainly spend the rest of our time together just talking about that. But from your perspective, have you noticed that a lot of people on the pro-life side don't even know who Margaret Sanger is, doesn't even mm-hmm. know some of the things that she believed and why she started the organization she did? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people, I think, are pro-life in the sense they're like, oh, yeah, I'm personally against abortion. But once you start to actually take time to study, and, and I in the book, you know, along with you know this manual, it's tons of information about the abortion industry, of course. Once you take time to actually look at what's happening and what has happened in this country, really over the last 100 years since Planned Parenthood was founded, it's mind-blowing. There is a multi-billion dollar abortion industry in this country that has deep pockets that is actually behind some of the most powerful politicians in the world, that is, you know, has friends in highest places in corporate America, social media companies, the COO of Facebook gives millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood. Every year, their abortion numbers over the last 10 years have increased 
the overall abortion rate is slowly dropping. Thanks be to God. Thanks be the hard work of the pro-life movement and mothers choosing life. But Planned Parenthood's numbers are going up. They have a goal. They want to kill. They want to lie. And they want complete domination, not just of the United States. They're in other countries trying to legalize abortion in Argentina. They just did it in Ireland. They did it two years ago. They are working daily. So this is a battle. You know, there is evil. Evil is real. Um, of course, we want to persuade and, and convert. You know, we want to pray for the people that are in the abortion industry. Um, you know, we, we ultimately, you know, give them to the mercy of God as we give ourselves. But we have to fight the lies that are being told. We have to fight on the political terrain and the cultural mm -hmm. terrain. And so, you know, the book details a lot of that. But yeah, Margaret Sanger, you know, she was a dehumanizer, a eugenicist. Um, but she's just a woman, you know, she's a woman who's dead now. You know, God rest her soul. May she have converted at the last moment. But she founded a corporation that has killed by itself just in the United States over 3 million children. She, she, and that's just in the last, you know, 15 mm. years, she, she is responsible for the political lobby that would eventually develop that has, that has killed 60 million children in the last 40 years in America. The global death toll to abortion is over a hundred thousand daily children, a hundred thousand globally mm -hmm. because of an abortion agenda that started in the United States. Largely we started it. So we've got to educate ourselves and we've got to be willing to fight this. And, and part of fighting it is knowing what's happening so we can educate other people. Well, obviously the United States, we're very proud about our exports, but we have exported some very <laughs> evil things, even as a nation that was founded on Christian principles, even though that's uncomfortable for people to even talk about. But I think it goes to a quote that I, I believe was in your book where it, it's attributed to Joseph Stalin, which is that, mm -hmm. you know, a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a st mm -hmm. statistic. And so it's like, if your child dies or if your neighbor dies, you feel that. But if someone's neighbor across the world dies, it doesn't hit you the same. And when we talk about things like the Holocaust, or when we talk about slavery, and we're talking about any of these things or, you know, the gulags mm -hmm. or, or Maoist China, there's all these huge numbers that we literally can't wrap ourselves around. Right. We can't wrap our minds right. around these types of things. And it just kind of goes to this idea where we just end up numbing ourselves. We're like, mm -hmm. we're just numb to these yeah. numbers. Oh, you know, another million babies yeah. were killed, you know, uh, in abortions in America this year. And we just don't even really think about it. And mm -hmm. I think that that kind of head in the sand attitude, Lila, it, it really carries over into the church, yeah. which there's a quote from chapter seven of your book is a short mm -hmm. one. It's just this. Despite the prevalence of abortion, even among churchgoers, which is true, our pastors never address the topic at youth group and would never and would very rarely address it with the larger larger congregation. So you were talking specifically about your upbringing at your church, right? But I can tell you, and sure this this isn't news to you, that is indicative of churches across the globe. The church that I attend now, every church that I've ever attended, if they talk about abortion, they mention it. That they just kind of mention, oh, it's bad, and isn't culture going to hell in a handbasket? And they just mention abortion in this litany of other evil, horrible things that are going on in our country, right? But it makes me furious, Lila, that mm -hmm. these these pastors, these these really these effeminate pastors that just can't stand up for themselves, they have no spine, that they're not really addressing this issue with the the requisite amount of force. Do you see the same thing? Have you seen some changes to that? Mm -hmm. Help me help bring me down because I'm I'm getting yeah. curious. I'm probably turning red, but like yeah. help me understand why they're doing yeah. that. I mean, imagine just contextually, if there were toddlers, beautiful little toddlers, two year olds being dragged to killing centers where they're dismembered by their parents, and every and the church, you know, literally a mile away is like praise the Lord Jesus, and they're not doing anything. There's no full time ministry to stop it. There's no full time full time political action to stop it. What is the church? 
Um, but that's happening. You know, they're younger than toddlers. Mm -hmm. They're two years younger. You know, they're in the womb, but they are just as human, just as child, just as much a child. And so, you know, I, I, I feel that burn and I know even myself, I'm like, oh, I got to do more, you know, myself and my family, like we got to do more. Yeah. This is a crisis. Um, and it's good to feel that burn, let yourself burn, let yourself get angry, let yourself, your heart break. Look, if you are in a church and your pastor is not talking about abortion, keep knocking on his door sit down with him, meet with him, you know, love him, say, Hey, you know, what about this? What about this offer? Be the man who goes in there and says, I will help start the full-time pro-life ministry in this church. You know, here I am. Um, I will, you know, I have my job, but I will dedicate as, you know, whatever I can do to make sure that this church is involved in educating in activating and in serving, making sure that any pregnant mom, you know, even a single mom, she does not feel like she has to go to that abortion clinic. She is embraced. She is supported. We educate our young people. Um, there's post-abortion ministry. You know, be the change in your church. Be the change in your church. Don't just be like, oh, my pastor drives me nuts. If your pastor is driving you nuts and you have done nothing about it, that's your fault at the end of the day, <laughs> you know? And and I tried mm -hmm. to put that to practice myself. You know, when I when I realized with, about abortion, my pastor's not doing anything, as I could see, I not kept knocking the door, my youth pastor. I'm like, hey, I want to give a pro presentation to my youth group. You know, I kept, I, for a year, I begged him <laughs> and I, you know, did all this work to prepare it. And finally he let me. So it, you know, you can make progress, but you have to be willing to be the one who makes the progress. Right. I think that's an important point. And I've told guys to, to do this in other contexts as well, but a lot of pastors sometimes think if they say something bold from the pulpit, that no one's going to have their back and they're afraid of that. Yes. And so I tell guys all the time, whatever the issue is within your church, just to tell them, pastor, if you decide to go, mm -hmm. if you decide to draw a line in the sand. Uh, on the subject of abortion or, or pick a, you know, in, incendiary topic, I will be standing on the side of the line where you are. I will back mm -hmm. you up. I will protect you. I, I will cover you in prayer and, you know, cover you physically if need be. But I think a lot of people don't really have that, have that in them from the church side. But then there are also some cracks. And I think you, you brought this up in your book as well with certain pro-life organizations where there's things with, that they could be doing that instead they're choosing not to. I don't think that's very indicative of live action and what you built, Lila. But there is a quote from chapter 16 that I'd like to get a little bit more context on and it's this. What troubled me more than death threats was hearing some leaders of like-minded organizations say behind closed doors that they couldn't support our efforts because the time wasn't right yet. Leaders who didn't seem to think that defunding the abortion industry was even possible, at least not for years or even decades. These should have been our allies. Instead, they were becoming obstacles. They had other agendas, and defunding Planned Parenthood wasn't one of them. It seemed to me that for some of them, the time would never be right. And so from the outside looking in, you live this fight you know, every minute of every day. I feel like that quote is indicative of a lot of pro-life organizations. And I guess the question is, is it because if abortion is criminalized, then that organization won't have any power anymore and there won't be anything to fundraise against it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I've heard that complaint. You know, what I really think it is, is it's just getting that normal, like that inertia, like being unafraid to push the envelope, being afraid to push the envelope, being afraid of leaving the comfort zone, getting so used to business as usual that you're, you know, afraid of trying something different because business as usual sometimes has worked. And listen, live action can fall into this. Any organization, any individual, any activist can fall into this. You start out strong, you're an activist, you're doing stuff, and then you're like, oh, you keep doing it and you kind of get comfortable with what you're doing and you keep doing it. And then someone else says, what about this? Maybe you should try this instead. It's more effective or it's smarter or it's better. And you're like resistance. You're resistant to the change. So I wouldn't go as far as saying, oh, they personally are just trying to keep their jobs as much as they're just a fearful 
of being uncomfortable, which again goes back to, we have to always allow ourselves to be uncomfortable. There's, we should never get comfortable in our activism. We should never get comfortable in you know the, 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 the demands politically that we're making. And so when I you know was demanding, we got to defund Planned Parenthood, they were comfortable with saying, oh, we should ban partial birth abortion. You know, that that maybe will save a few hundred children a year. Thanks be to God. And even then they'll just change the abortion procedure and kill the baby a different way. And not a single child was saved. Right. But that was like their big thing. That was the big thing. It's like, let's let's think bigger. Mm -hmm. What about banning all abortions? Why are we just going to ban a few? Let's go and go for them all. Go for broke. You know, that's what the movement should be focused on, actually. Um, And so, you know, to this day, live action, you know, internally, as the bigger we get, the harder you can fall. So as we get bigger and big is good, big is strong. But as we get bigger, it's like, look, we got to keep the edge, keep the edge of what are we really fighting for and be willing to risk and get uncomfortable to achieve it. So that that's sort of how I diagnose that sort of comfort zone activism, comfort zone pro-life work. And I think anybody can fall into it, including myself, including live action, if we're not willing to stay uncomfortable. And so that I think is the, the, the denominator. And those leaders, they were just same old business, business as usual. But business as usual wasn't enough. <laughs> you know, it wasn't solving. Planned Parenthood was getting more money than right. ever. So I was like, we got to switch it up. And so I have a chapter called Pivot, which is about switching your strategy to make it more effective. Don't get used to whatever you've been doing in the past because you've always done it. Switch up your strategy. Keep trying new things to push the envelope to be effective. And, you know, I'm still doing that today. You know, I'm not this, the game's not over. We, we've The fight is on. We have so much more work left mm-hmm. to do. Well, I think the way you said it is comfort zone activism. Uh, th- those that's kind of like jumbo shrimp. Those those things do not work together. Like both of those things cannot be the same thing. But I was gonna I was gonna go into this a little bit later in the podcast. But I you you mentioned it, so I want to go ahead and go there. I feel like there are a lot of half measures being done. And then a half measure is done, a bunch of morons clap, and then we go on about our our regular life. So we celebrate heartbeat bills. But mm-hmm. some abortions take place before the heartbeat. And, you know, you've detailed cases. I've heard other cases detailed of Planned Parenthood doesn't want to find the heartbeat. And so you can manipulate what's going on in the room to where you don't find a heartbeat. Right. And we celebrate mm-hmm. states that are born uh, that, you know, say you can't do an abortion for the listed reason of Down syndrome. But a woman could just as easily say that they want an abortion for literally any other reason mm-hmm. and they can get it. It can be granted to them. You saw the L.A. Times article uh, from, you know, as of listening to this, it'll be, will have been a couple of weeks ago saying a woman shouldn't have to give a reason. They should be able to get an abortion for any reason. So I think this begs the question, Lila, which is, should we still be trying these half measures legislatively, Mm -hmm. or should we only want the full criminalization of the practice of abortion? Yeah. So the end game and the focus needs to be full criminalization, hundred percent. So live action, we'd say two things, full legal protection and defund all abortion. Like those are, those are the two, if you're going to, if you're going to come to me for political strategy advice, I say, you know, defund any, including hospitals, anybody that does abortions and then full legal protection of children, period. Um, will we still celebrate a heartbeat bill? Like if I see legislators doing a heartbeat bill in a state that there wasn't one, do I think that that is better than what was there before? Yes. Am I going to tell them, okay, stop there. You're, you're good. Congrats. You did it. No. So I think it's a nuance. I think, no. I think we do have to celebrate um, people working their working really hard and doing important things that can save lives. But I think we need to focus the end game, mm. right? Like you said, the end game is total criminalization, complete legal protection, and that needs to remain the focus. So I think it's a both and, and, you know, there's a lot of um, strategies and different philosophies and legal theories and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, and I was just um, doing an interview about this, you know, the Supreme Court, 
the Supreme Court pays attention. You know, the whole the whole question is where is the country trending? And when we see states doing total abolition or working towards total abolition, heartbeat bill is the closest beyond, you know, except for total ab ab abolition, but mm -hmm. it's definitely better than 20 week ban, right? It's definitely better than, you know, born alive survivors act to save the mm -hmm. child if it survives the abortion attempt, right? Just those kids. Um, when the Supreme Court sees right. the hardcore, you know, we mean business as a movement, um, that makes, first of all, that affects hearts and minds, but that does affect legal theory that can lead to overruling Roe. And so I do think, you know, to your point, we got to focus end game on where it really should be, which is personhood, right? It's it's acknowledging the child, just like anybody, mm -hmm. any other person under the law, treat the same, you know, murder is criminalized. Each state handles that differently. Let them handle it and make sure that those children are protected. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it goes back to what are we asking for? What are we asking for as a movement? One of the live actions, future pivots, you know, we've done a lot on education, changing hearts and minds. We're going to be launching a very robust um, political program in the next um, two, three years that will be aggressive on complete legal protection because I've you know, been dissatisfied with our movements, um, half measures, as you say. Am I going to um, you know, not say a half measure is better than no measure? No, but that means I'm going to do my job, right? Work to position my organization that I can contribute yep. and, and, and lead. So I think the bottom line is, I'm kind of long-winded. The bottom line is, don't just complain. If you don't like how the legal strategy is done out there, guys, go on, be a better legal strategist and put the work in, build the organization, build the political force. Um, otherwise, you know, support the best out there support the best out there and try to make it better. Absolutely. And and with that, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but as we sit here right now, and by the time this is released, maybe things have moved a little bit. But as we sit here right now, there are current bills for equal protection for all humans in the states of Oklahoma, my state, thankfully, South Carolina, Texas, and Arizona, right? <laughs> and that means the criminalization of abortion, not the regulation of it. But just to be honest, and this is a little bit of my ignorance, I can't find a lot of details on these mm -hmm. and I can't find counter arguments to whether or not these bills are just posturing because people do that all the time. They write a bill that no is going to get killed in committee, but they can at least put it on a bumper sticker or a commercial. But what are your thoughts on those bills that are currently working through the system in Oklahoma, South Carolina, Texas, and Arizona? Well, and they have to be written intelligently. You know, I, I would have to yep. read... You know, I don't know the latest version. I've seen some of these bills. I've seen some that were written poorly and some that are written intelligently. And what I mean by that is, you know, when when pro-abortion activists say, oh, you're going to criminalize miscarriage, blah, 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 blah. Right. There's all these like complaints. It's like, no, of course. of course not. But if you're sloppy with how you write the law, you could have, you know, an activist judge. I don't think many of these even exist, but let's just say theoretically for the sake of the argument, you know, who does something crazy because the law was written sloppily. So when we're working to create complete legal protection, the laws have to be written in a really smart, airtight way to make sure that we really achieve complete legal protection without having other weird things happen around miscarriage or pregnancy or, or things that are not intended. So, you know, I think you know, there is model legislation. I know some organizations work on model legisla legislation. Live Action has not done that to date. Again, we will be getting into that because I think it's a need in the movement. Um, there's mm -hmm. not enough of it being done. But I would say, you know, that's that's a, a great question moving forward. You know, what is the who is doing it the best of those states? Um, I can't answer that right now. Who has the best legislation? I think Alabama has had really good, um, you know, I've seen good things out of Alabama for, for the legislation that they've tried. But I think there's ultimately, you know, I think there's a lack of leadership at the national level for what does the state, what does the ideal state legislation look like? So that's a great opportunity. Maybe someone listening, they're like, that's a calling for me. Um, I know it's something Live Action will be working to address 
you know, mm -hmm. soon as we sh pivot yet again from education is key, but we need more work on the political front because there's not enough, there's not enough focus right there. There's not enough being done right there yet. Right. And, and so this next question, I, I wasn't really planning to go there, but you, you keep bringing up things that I think are important. Um, there's this concept of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. Mm -hmm. So that's been mentioned as part of maybe a state can be a sanctuary state, meaning there we will not allow anything in this state that, you know, lends itself to abortion. There will be no abortions performed in this state and basically give a big finger to the federal government and be like, Hey, we have sanctuary cities and states that don't abide by federal legislation and law. This is just one more thing. What are your thoughts in terms of pro-life states or pro-life, mm -hmm. you know, legislatures in those states doing something like that? I would love to see governor Greg Abbott, you know, or governor Ron DeSantis just say, Nope, Nope, I'm not going to let people kill people in my state. Nope, not going to happen. I'm going to call in, call in, you know, my my security forces, and we're just not going to do it. And just what are, what are they going to do? Is going to have the federal government send in the U.S. military to force Ron DeSantis's, you know, you know, state, uh, you know, authorities to let parents kill their children? I mean, I'd like to see that kind of, you know, unprecedented leadership at the state level. So. To get mm. that, to make that possible, you got to build a big coalition of support, right? Behind, I mean, unless there's act of God, a miracle mm -hmm. of courage from that leader, which you can pray for. Otherwise, working in the real world, you need to get a big coalition of support. So again, that's another political strategy that Live Action's thought about. <laughs> we're considering, um, we're looking at launching a political arm for that. Mm -hmm. If you're a donor and you're listening, you want to support that, we're going to be raising money for that and building a team for that. But that's the kind of thing that I think needs to happen for the tipping points politically to really reach the end game. And, and they say they're super pro-life, so why can't they do it? <laughs> Again, that that's part of the thing, and and that really dovetails nicely into into what I want to talk about next. It's an excerpt from probably my favorite chapter in the book, and it's chapter eighteen. But it's where we get into these people that are very, very concerned about what their constituents might think or say, as opposed to worrying about the people that can't protect themselves, namely these babies that are in the womb. So I want to read these a couple of paragraphs. They're separated by a little bit in chapter eighteen, but I think it's fantastic. So here, back to the book. Those first years in D.C. taught me the stark realities of politics and organization building. We faced a decades-old entrenchment of apathy and inaction around abortion. Yes, we were featured regularly on conservative TV shows. We riled up activists and fired up a few Republican members of Congress. I met with Senate leaders. They listened politely and agreed with me in principle. Some even spoke with me at the press conference or rallies. However, we also faced many obstacles. Perhaps the biggest obstacles of all were the desperate fear many politician leaders had of an openly hostile media and how the media's negative coverage of their words or votes might impact their reputation with constituents. And a little bit later in the chapter, you say this, the House had the power to remove from the budget funding for Planned Parenthood and all abortion clinics and redirect it to authentic health care providers who helped save lives instead of ending them. Even though pro-abortion politicians controlled the Senate and the White House, the House could refuse to approve any budget that allowed funding for abortion clinics. Yet, House members were afraid to do that. If the government shut down over abortion funding, the media would blame them and they knew it. So Lila, in the margin of my book, which I don't like writing in books, it, it drives me nuts. It makes me feel funky, right? I wrote, who gives an F in the margin of my book? I'll keep it PG. But like, we're worried about what Don Lemon might say on CNN, or we're worried about the morning show on MSNBC. Like, 
you have been in those rooms and I haven't, right? So it's okay for me to be righteously indignant sitting here in my studio. But for you, what is it like when you see these people that stand in front of their donors or in front of their voters and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to support you in Washington only to become a coward the moment they get there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, a few thoughts. First of all, if you get up on the table and you say, who gives enough, which I was tempted to do in a number of meetings, um, you know, you're probably not going to get invited back ever again in the room. So you got to like, you got to play the game enough to be at the table, but then you have to also not care about being at the table as your, as your end game. And so that's the tricky thing, you know, and again, I haven't, we haven't succeeded yet. So I'm talking about someone who's had some victories, but the ultimate victory, we haven't won yet. Right. I'm still figuring it out how to get there. And, I, you know, I have a lot of ideas. The political arm we're planning to launch will you know, have some great strategies, but we're not there yet. As you know, Kyle, we have not achieved protection. Mm -hmm. You know, there's children being killed today. Twenty three hundred and two thousand three hundred and sixty three children today killed. So um, ultimately, you got to play the game enough to move the pieces while still thinking outside of their game because they're used to certain rules that you can't win with because the rules were set up by the opposition, right? The opposition set up the playing field mm -hmm. right now. The opposition said, oh, you have to, you know, you gotta have the media like you, right? The opposition said, oh, you need to, um, you know, always permit some abortions because of Roe v. Wade, right? The opposition says, you know, if you do this, then you're not gonna be elected anymore. So they're thinking in terms of what the opposition has said, and you have to almost introduce a new paradigm for how to think about political success. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons Trump was so attractive to people, Donald Trump, because he had this like, he kind of blew through paradigms to a degree. Although for four years of Donald Trump, Planned Parenthood funding went up mm -hmm. overall federally. A lot of people don't talk about that. You know, when he funded right. the vaccines, they mm -hmm. were still using aborted baby cell lines in the, in the, in the testing of several of the coronavirus vaccines. I mean, so there were things that were done, which like that's not good enough. Right. So it's a work in progress. It's meeting people where they're at and urging them on and pushing them on and prodding them on. But I think ultimately the end game, again, is to step outside of the system to say, okay, we're going to build our own candidates. Candidates. We're going to get behind our own, you know, the kind of a, the kind of governor who would just say, no, I'm shutting down our abortion clinic. Sorry, not happening. Again, what's the federal government going to do? Send in the U.S. militia? Like, what are they going to do? We have to think really, really big here. Um, and we have to stop playing the games we've been playing for the last 40 years. I think ultimately that's the future um, of achieving victory as a movement. Uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to take time. It's going to take building coalitions that are bigger than we've had before. Uh, but we got to do it. And I think we're going to mm -hmm. we're going to do it. And I think we're positioned to do it. You know, I think the movement you know, the urgency you feel, a lot of people feel it, but they're looking for leaders. They're looking for people who are willing to push the mm -hmm. envelope politically. And so, um, you know, as we get those leaders, I think a lot of people are going to want to follow and support them. Absolutely. And that's why we will continue to follow organizations like yours and make sure that your information is out there as you do pivot, because that is very important to the continued fight that we all face. One thing, and this is kind of getting a little bit granular, but this has come up for me and it's come up with me, even with discussions of people at church. Towards the end of your book, you talk about how abortion is never medically necessary. Okay. And now whenever I've said that to people, they look back at me, like I just said, the moon is made of cheese. Like they, they can't like fathom. They're like, that's just, you're lying to me. Why would you say something like that? But specifically, even in high risk situ situations, mm -hmm. that is the truth. But from your perspective, just give my listeners the words to say. So when someone's like, you know, well, what about the life of the mother? You know, what about in that situation? Mm -hmm. And they respond, abortion is never medically necessary. Yeah. And then they get the normal pushback. What would you say to that person? Yeah. So 
first of all, just know there are thousands of medical professionals. There are literally thousands of OBGYNs, the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who say definitively that the intentional direct taking of an innocent life, abortion, is never medically necessary. So this is not some like activist opinion. This is not some, you know, a, you know, idea that somebody has in pro-lifer. This is the position of thousands of medical experts globally too. The Dublin Declaration, thousands of medical experts saying it. Okay, why do they say that? And why do so many people say it is medically necessary? Because we have taken the shortcut of just kill the baby if there's any issue whatsoever because it's easier. All right. Just because something is easier. If you're a doctor, your patient come in, they have, you know, coronary, you know, issues, they have their diabetes, whatever. Yeah. Would it be easier for you as a doctor to just kill your patient so you don't have to treat any of the issues? In, in a sense, yes. Right. You don't have any sure. issues to deal with. There's yeah. no problems anymore. Um, that's not healthcare. That's murder. Okay. So in, in, a, in, a, in a pregnancy that's a high risk or there's an issue with the baby, you know, maybe the baby has a disability or anencephaly, water on the brain, something like this. You have to work to treat the child, treat the pregnancy to make it as healthy as possible, treat the woman to maximize the best outcomes. But going in and intentionally killing that baby is not a medical treatment, period. It's, it's akin to killing your diabetic patient. So that's the bottom line. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, different complications that can happen in pregnancy in very rare cases, severe complications in the most severe of all complications in a situation with preeclampsia or something where, you know, especially this happens later in pregnancy, there's some serious health issue for the mother ongoing pregnancy. The doctor can often mm -hmm. monitor that pregnancy and choose to deliver the baby early right? They might be the best decision. Try to make sure the baby's pacifiability. Maybe we have preemie, deliver that baby early. That's not an abortion. Early delivery with the intent to fight for that baby's life and fight for the mom's life is not an abortion. You're trying to save the baby's life. An abortion is going in there and saying, I'm going to kill the baby first, which is what they do in an abortion, and then deliver it. Um, keep in mind too, for every abortion, you have to deliver the baby whether it's first trimester, second trimester, or third trimester. The difference with healthcare, instead of killing, is you actually try to save that, that child's life instead of killing that child. Well, I think it's very important, uh, and I appreciate the way that you talk, because you don't use a, a lot of euphemisms, which I appreciate. I, I tend to be a pretty to-the-point person, but it's like, no, this isn't a woman's right to choose. This is a woman paying a mercenary to murder her baby so she doesn't have to, right? Like, that's that, it's okay to say things that way, but we have to be forceful and understand what is actually happening in these types of situations, and that get, gets back to this whole concept of fighting. And no, we're, we're not likening this to, to fighting evil overseas or even fighting in an octagon or something like that, but I, I really like how you ended your book. This is isn't the very, very end of the book, because guys, if you want to hear that part, which it's fantastic, you got to make sure that you pick up the book. But in the last chapter, chapter 27, you say this towards the end of the chapter. What is the vision for which we fight? We fight for the innocence of all children and their right to be loved and protected. We fight for the sacredness of every human being from the first moment of their existence, when God himself designs a new, unique, and totally irreplaceable life. We fight for justice, for the day when our laws treat all people equally and no one is left out. We fight for that breakthrough moment when respect for God's justice reigns in every human heart. We fight for the dignity of every woman and girl, and that each one might know her worth. We fight for motherhood and fatherhood and for the sacredness of family. We fight for life, for the precious gift of a life lived as fully and abundantly as God intended here on earth and in hope of the eternity to come. So that seems to be the calling card of this book. Yeah, everything crescendos with that moment, but you're very, very in, intentional about calling this a fight. Why? Because it is. Um, it's a battle 
against evil. Um, you know, Jesus Christ dying on a cross, he was fighting for us to the point of death. That's the example he gave us, you know, for our sake so that we could live eternally. And because of the, you know, because of our sin that we wouldn't be lost to death, lost to sin. And we have a job to get up and follow Christ. And he says, take, pick up your cross and follow me. That takes fight. That takes fight. And so I just would say to anybody, you know, back to being uncomfortable, letting our heart break, um, you know, also really focusing on what we're fighting for. I talk a lot about family and faith because those things are beautiful. You know, who are we fighting for? What good we are fighting for? So keep the vision of what we're fighting for in mind. Train yourself for the battle. You know, I share a lot of tips I've learned for what that looks like, strategies, tools, um, and then get in there. It's not going to be perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but God wants us to show up. And if we are willing to do that, I think we can change this. I think we absolutely can change this. We can change this country. We've changed it before. We can change it again for the better. And we can make this nation one that is just instead of permitting the the, the destruction that we've permitted. Well, and to that end, this is my last question of the day. This was actually my planned last question. And it's because I tend to be a very pessimistic guy. A lot of people, I don't strike them as pessimistic, but I just kind of have that tendency. The glass always half empty. I, I, I don't know. I need some rewiring there. But I'm also very pessimistic specifically about abortion ever being completely banned and criminalized in the United States. I'm hopeful for some of the things in individual states, but I'm a very pessimistic guy. Am, am I crazy to think that that's never going to happen? Am I just having a lack of faith? You know, help me here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a student of history. I talk a lot about history in the book. You look at history, some of the darkest moments, both in our country and globally, and there was plenty of reason for pessimism, right? You know, Hitler was on the move. He was taking over swaths of Europe. Um, you know, the United States was was being crushed in so many ways. There was nuclear warfare. There was, you know, what, you know, the, the axis of evil. People really thought mm -hmm. this might be the end of the world for us, especially with um, the nuclear war that was, you know, seemed imminent with the Soviet Union and the horrors going on in the Soviet Union. There have been so many times globally when it looked like D-Day was here, like the global D-Day, and it was going to be game over soon. And in our history, there were so many people, Kyle, I studied this in college and I continued to study it as I grew live action. And I talk a little bit about this in the book who said it's impossible to eradicate slavery. This is an institution that goes back thousands of years. And it did. Mm -hmm. It did. It went back thousands of years. It is impossible to eradicate. Um, it's just too, in, too entrenched. It's economically necessary. Um, racism is natural. And even, you know, God forbid, they would say God given, like there would be this, you know, Christian emphasis for it among right. some very corrupt pastors. And and it was just so entrenched. And it wasn't until people said, um, who dared to believe differently. And I think that is a fighter. A fighter dares to believe differently. They refuse to accept defeat. They refuse to accept no for an answer. And they get up and they keep fighting even when all seems lost. And God can do anything with a fighter like that. So be a fighter like that. Because God has the ultimate victory to hand us if we are willing to get up and meet him and have the hope in our hearts that he wants to give us. Well, I certainly appreciate that sentiment, and I can't think of a better place to leave it. I appreciate you letting us dig uh, so much into the details. And fight of with your... hope. Yeah, fight with hope. Don't. You can't leave that and, part out And I'll out say there. one more thing. Yeah. No, one more thing. When you're fighting, be a cheerful warrior. You know, if you're fighting, Kyle, we're fine fighting. I'm like, we're never going to win, but I'm going to still fight. Nah, that's not, that's, not how you, that's not how you become a champion. You go in the fight and you say, we are going to win. We are just going to win. And by the way, we have God, truth, and love on our side. How can we not? So we are going to win, okay? So go in there with the winning spirit and watch how it infects people. 
watch how your hope and your optimism infects people. Absolutely. And I, hopefully you didn't mean that I sound like that. Cause I don't literally sit there and stop my feet, but that's okay. If no, that was I know. A low key dig, I'm okay with that. Our- <laughs> I, I can accept it, but no, I, I really do appreciate that sentiment a lot. Um, we we've talked about a lot of the details of the book. I was glad we were able to get into some of those details, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Thank you. Thank you for being a strong leader and for, you know, speaking out so boldly on this. It's necessary. And I just hope folks listening will be inspired, encouraged by the book and join the fight. You know, if you're already in it, you know, be equipped and encouraged. And if you're not in it, please join. Lila Rose, thanks for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks for having me. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my second conversation with Lila Rose, and I can pretty much guarantee you that that will not be the last. Before we let you guys go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the resources we've got for you today, we've got a link to the book that we talked about, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. Now, guys, you can buy this anywhere as of today. So go support local bookstores, support Thomas Nelson, who is actually publishing this book, support them any way that you can. Also, I've got a link to the live action website and a link to the Lila Rose show. That is her podcast. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want me to come speak at your live event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. You can do that at www.undaunted.life. And we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>